In the 2008 Summer Olympic Games held in Beijing, China, in the men's 4x100-meter relay, the U.S. team was in excellent position to bring home the gold. As, as a team, they had had the fastest qualifying heat of any team in the Olympics. Through the first two runners, things were looking good. But as world-class sprinter Tyson Gay reached back to take the baton from Daryl Patton, his hand closed on thin air. The crowd let out a collective gasp as they saw the baton fall to the rain-slicked track. And in that moment, all hopes for a medal in that event vanished. In any relay race, the passing of the baton is the critical moment. The team may have the world's best sprinters, but if they miss that baton pass, all is all is lost. In the letter we know as Second Timothy, Paul is passing the baton of ministry to Timothy, and he is very concerned to make a clean handoff. As we saw a few weeks ago when Jake preached, Paul commands Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. That's 2 Timothy 1.6. And then the rest of the letter builds upon that theme of encouraging and exhorting Timothy to a strong ministry. And as Jake said so well, all Christians are called to fan into flame the gift of God so that we can fulfill the ministry that God has given us. Let me say that again. All Christians are called to fan into flame the gift of God so that we can fulfill the ministry that God has given us. This picture of a ministry handoff is vivid in 2 Timothy 2.2, which is one of the key verses for the whole book. As Paul writes to Timothy, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That verse reminds me of a four-man relay as Paul runs the first leg and then he entrusts the baton of ministry to Timothy with the things that you have heard from me. He's passing it along. Then Timothy must entrust that baton to faithful men who will pass it along to others also. That is four generations of ministry in one verse. But actually, the principle there of 2 Timothy 2.2 goes far beyond four generations because this pattern of ministry from Paul to Timothy to faithful men to more faithful men must continue for every to every generation right up to you and me. You and I have the gospel today because faithful men and women have taught other faithful men and women who taught other faithful men and women who taught us. Another key passage which suggests this idea of passing the baton is Second Timothy 4, verses 5 to 7, where Paul writes this. He says, but you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry for or because I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. 
And so as Paul writes this letter, he knows that he is about to die. He is urging Timothy to run hard in the race of his ministry. Imagine that you were in Paul's place near the end of your life, passing on your passion, your concern for the church to the next generation. What things would you emphasize? What are the important themes for an effective ministry that will endure from generation to generation until Jesus returns? Today we're going to focus on chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. So would you please follow along in your Bible as I read, and I'm going to read most of the chapter beginning at verse 5 through 18. Jake just a few weeks ago preached on much of this, and I'll continue on to the end of the chapter. Second Timothy chapter one, beginning at verse five, the apostle Paul writes, for I'm mindful of the sincere faith which with within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know who I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Well, as you all know very well, Pastor Andy and Jake Hightower are in the Philippines today. And they are teaching this very book to pastors and church leaders there. In fact, right now in the Philippines, it's Monday morning. And on this very Monday, they will begin teaching through the book of Second Timothy in Rojas, Isabella. And as we will see shortly, the things in this book are extremely relevant to the church in the Philippines, just as they are extremely relevant to us today. In this passage on which I will focus this morning, beginning at verse 13, we will see three principles which are necessary to fan the flames of ministry, which will endure from generation to generation until Jesus returns. And the first is this, fan the flame with a commitment to sound teaching. Verse 13, fan the flame 
with a commitment to sound teaching. Look, please, closely at verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The word retain or hold fast is a present tense command in the original language. And so that in particular calls for a continuing or an ongoing action in order to keep the flame and the passion of Christian ministry burning. We must hold on and continue holding on to the standard or pattern of sound, healthy teaching, holding fast to biblical truth as opposed to new ideas, the ideas of men going other directions. This is one of Paul's primary themes as he passes the baton to Timothy. This is so important that Paul keeps coming back to it in different ways and other ways. Look ahead to that verse I read earlier, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, where we see this idea again. 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. There's that baton. These entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. These things that you have heard from me are the sound teachings. But what are they? What things does he mean? Well, look ahead again to chapter 2, verse 15. Paul again writes to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. What are these things? What are these sound words that Timothy is to preach and teach? It is the word of truth. It is the Bible, the word of God. Look next at chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, the same idea. You, that is Timothy, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. There it is again, the baton pass. The things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom which leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, fully equipped for every good work. So once again, Paul is urging Timothy to continue in these things that he now calls the sacred writings. Verse 14, he calls them all scripture. Verse 16. And one more verse on this theme. Look at chapter 4 and verse 2. Paul writes to Timothy, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. What is Timothy to preach? What is Timothy to teach? Not anything new. Not the latest Greek philosophy. Not psychology, not anthropology, not humanism, not pluralism, not the ideas of man. Preach the word. 
teach the scriptures, the sacred writings, the word of truth. In this book, he also calls it the gospel, the standard, and the treasure. Enduring Christian ministry can be built only upon one foundation. That is the word of God. We have seen how this theme weaves through the entire letter. Hold fast, retain the standard, continue in the things that you have already learned. Now, why is that so important to Paul? When when Paul writes that command, retain sound words, in verse 13, chapter 1, that very expression, sound words, makes it obvious that there are also unsound words and unhealthy words and unhealthy teachings. There will always be false teachers looking for an opportunity to twist and distort and pervert the truth. And this is what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 3. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Same words, sound words, sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. This problem has not changed. Today, Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is not one with God the Father, but he is a lesser God. They say Jehovah is almighty God and Jesus is an angel, the first angel created, but not God. They teach many other unsound doctrines as well. The Mormons take it a step further. The Mormons also deny the the deity of Jesus Christ. They say he is not one with God the Father. They teach that Jesus is a God and get this, you could become one too. You can have your own planet and be the God over that planet and be just as much a God as Jesus is. They teach many other unsound doctrines too. In the Philippines today, as we think of Jake and Pastor Andrew, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses are very strong and very active. And many of you who are are from or well-connected with the Philippines, have heard of a cult which began in the Philippines in 1914 called Iglesia Ni Cristo. It's a cult which also denies the deity of Jesus Christ. They teach that Jesus was created, that he's not eternal. They teach that they are the one true church and that no one comes to salvation outside of Iglesia Ni Cristo. And they teach many other unsound unhealthy doctrines too. Now, in the Philippines, this cult Iglesia Ni Cristo is well known for having very beautiful, very grand, very majestic, very impressive temples. If anyone is ever tempted to join a church because it looks really good, they'll be drawn to Iglesia Ni Cristo. So here's a rather practical application for us. Never choose a church based on how it looks on the outside, Iglesia Ni Cristo in the Philippines, or the Mormon churches in the United States often have the best-looking church buildings in the community. But just as God said to Samuel, 2 Samuel 16, 7, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord 
looks at the heart. That, of course, is talking about choosing a man who will become king. But the same is true of choosing a church. Never look on the outward appearance, but ask first and foremost, is this church committed to sound teaching, to teaching the word of God? Look again, please, at chapter 1, verse 13. And notice one more phrase. As Paul writes, retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It is very easy to become argumentative and then defensive and then angry and perhaps even abusive when one is teaching the truth of the word of God and defending against unhealthy, unsound words. And unfortunately, there are ministries that fall into this pattern of abusive, angry speech whenever they're talking. We must teach the word. We must be absolutely committed to the word of God, but we must always do it in a manner of faith and love, just as is consistent with Jesus. Now let's think for a moment about some other practical applications of verse 13. Practical application one, make a commitment to attend and support a church which carefully and thoughtfully teaches the Bible to giving attention to what the author meant when he wrote. That is called the historical context. This is called exegesis. And this is exactly what Jake and Pastor Andy are doing today in the Philippines. They're not just teaching 2 Timothy. They are teaching the principles of biblical exegesis so that as to help pastors and teachers teach the Bible from any book of the Bible. 2 Timothy is their learning laboratory this week for teaching Sound teaching. Practical application number one, make a commitment to attend and support a church which teaches the Bible. Number two, take part whenever you can in our Fellowship in the Word weekends because that is exactly the purpose of those weekends. Together, we learn how to study the Bible carefully and thoughtfully, and to understand what it means in its context and not what some false teacher wants to do by ripping it out of its context and twisting it to say something else. Practical application number three, for those of you who might be a little more academically oriented, read some Christian history in order to find out where these false doctrines came from and why, because they're never new. They're the same unsound ideas repackaged time and time again for another generation. Read some Christian history. Practical application number four, whether you're here in church or together in a small group or talking one-on-one, always seek to teach the truth of God's word in faith and in love. The first principle here in verse 13 is to fan the flame with a commitment to sound, healthy teaching. The second principle is to fan the flame by guarding the treasure of the gospel. Verse 14, fan the flame by guarding the treasure of the gospel. Look at verse 14. Paul writes, 
guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. There's that baton again. It's been entrusted to you. Now you guard it. At first glance, this verse looks very similar to verse 13. It's a command. It's about something Timothy already has. Verse 13, the things you've learned. Verse 14, the things you've been entrusted to me. Two, but there are also differences. The command in verse 13 emphasizes ongoing action. The command in verse 14 expresses a sense of urgency and alertness. Guard it right now. Preserve it. Protect it. Verse 13, we could say, is the positive side of ministry. Teach what is right and good and healthy and sound. Verse 14 gives the flip side. Guard against error. Verse 13 is the offense. Verse 14 is the defense. Guard the gospel by confronting and correcting false teaching. Remember that Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, and this is exactly what Paul told the elders of Ephesus back in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and following. There we read this. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves Therefore, watch. Same idea, guard. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Fanning the flame of effective, enduring ministry requires guarding the gospel against savage wolves and false teachers. Several years ago, Carolyn and I had the opportunity to visit London. So we celebrated a major wedding anniversary. And one of the truly spectacular attractions we visited in London was the display of the crown jewels in the Tower of London. Now, this is not just some small jewelry case. On display are the many, many crowns and scepters and swords and staffs and spurs and rings and orbs and trumpets of the empire. In all, there are 23,578 precious and semi-precious stones included. We saw the largest clear-cut diamond in the world at 530 carats along, of course, with many, many other diamonds and sapphires and rubies and gold and silver. But that came to mind as I thought of this verse, as I thought about how well those crown jewels are guarded. The guards were extremely vigilant. They were making eye contact and looking at every visitor and sizing them up. And there were many guards. And the many other security features were very obvious, including doors that were ready to slam shut in a moment that had metal posts this big around that could rise up from the floor. And I'm sure there were many, many other security features unseen to the 2.5 million visitors every year who come to see the crown jewels. They are extremely well guarded. Friends, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a treasure, 
That's what verse 14 calls it. We have a treasure that is more valuable than the crown jewels of the British Empire. And we are to continually fan the flames of Christian ministry by diligently, urgently guarding that treasure. And how shall we do it? You know, just as verse 13 had a guiding principle to preach the word and retain the standard in faith and love, verse 14 also has a guiding instruction. Guard it by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. The word us there is plural. It speaks of Paul and Timothy and every believer in Jesus Christ through all ages. If you can say with Paul, as he did in verse 12, For I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him against that day. If you can say that, I know whom I have believed. Then you're included in verse 14, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Guard it through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's our resource, our help, our strength, our guide to guard the gospel from attack and compromise. The Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, convicts and testifies. And so we need to rely on the Holy Spirit through prayer, through study, through living pure lives that we may not grieve the Holy Spirit, and he will strengthen us to guard the treasure. Are you holding fast the pattern, verse 13? Are you guarding the treasure Verse 14, can you recognize when something doesn't square with Scripture? Are you a diligent guard, examining what you hear, making sure that error doesn't sneak in? Remember, false doctrine always comes in the front door looking... I'm sorry, I'm going to say that backwards. False doctrine never comes in the front door wearing an ugly mask and a name tag that says, Wolf. No, false doctrine comes in the back door as if it's one of the family trying to act just like it belongs here. Guard against it by diligence, awareness, study, asking questions, confronting, and correcting. Verse 14 ends the exhortations of chapter 1. Paul urged Timothy to kindle afresh the gift of God. Verse 6, he urged him to not be ashamed and join with him in suffering. And now we've seen the next two commands, retain the standard, guard the treasure. Just a few more practical applications in particular to guarding the treasure. One way to guard the treasure is to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Keep it in mind. Keep it before you. Keep it familiar. Remind yourself every day that Christ died for my sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he may bring us to God. Remind yourself of 2 Timothy 5.20, or 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Any righteousness that I have is not my own. It's that of Jesus, which he has given me. You keep the gospel continually before your eyes that you may quickly recognize that which is not gospel. Practical application number two. Lovingly, gently, but clearly 
explain to friends, family, fellow church members, if they're wandering off into strange ideas and unhealthy teachings. Practical application three. Support your pastor and elders when they take a stand against false teaching. This is important because our culture values toleration above all else, and it is very unpopular when anyone criticizes or disagrees with someone else's belief system. All roads lead to God, they say. You have your belief system, they have theirs. That's our culture today. But guarding the truth requires the boldness and courage to say, this is right, and therefore that which does not square with this is wrong. Stand with your pastors and elders when they eventually have to say that's wrong. We fan the flame with a commitment to sound teaching. Verse 13. We fan the flame by guarding the treasure of the gospel. Verse 14. And then third, we fan the flame by giving and receiving encouragement from other faithful believers. Verses 15 to 18. Now, this one is not a command. It's an example. But it begins with a negative example in verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. We don't know exactly what happened. We don't know anything more about these two men, Phygelus and Hermogenes. But it says that Timothy is well aware. He knows. Asia here refers to the Roman province called Asia, which is the western half of modern-day Turkey and the islands that are offshore in the Mediterranean from there. Ephesus, where Timothy was the pastor, was the capital city of Asia. And so Paul says, Timothy, in your province, where your church is foremost, where I personally taught night and day for three years, everyone abandoned me. No one came to my defense. Chapter 4, verse 16, he says, at my defense, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Well, what happened? Why didn't Luke testify? Chapter 4, verse 11 says, only Luke is with me. Or why didn't Timothy come and stand with Paul? Well, in the Roman system of justice, Timothy and Titus and Luke and others like them could not testify on behalf of Paul. They were considered co-conspirators who had aided and abetted the apostle in his accused crime. Paul's closest associates were forbidden from testifying. So apparently Paul had called upon some of the leading citizens of Asia, the Christians, to come and testify. He chose respected men of the church who named the name of Christ. That would be this Phygelus and Hermogenes. But they fled. These men were well known to Timothy, probably members of the church, but out of fear, they refused to join with Paul in his suffering, and they ran away. So as I make this third point, fan the flame by giving and receiving encouragement to and from other believers. Understand that other people will sometimes disappoint you and even abandon you at the most important times. Don't let that stop you. Because in verse 16, we meet a wonderful counterexample 
and his name is Onesiphorus. Verse 16. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. That phrase, not ashamed, is in contrast to the men of the previous verse. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at, at Ephesus. Onesiphorus was also a man of Ephesus, well known to Timothy. And Paul tells the story in reverse here. He starts with the last thing that happened. He searched for me and found me and refreshed me. And then he works his way uh, to earlier things and how he was a servant in Ephesus. Onesiphorus demonstrates for us three qualities to follow as we seek to refresh others. Verse 17 first describes his perseverance when it says he eagerly searched for me. Another translation gives that a little more precisely as it says he searched hard for me. The Greek scholar Alvard translates this as he searched for me with extraordinary diligence with great diligence, with personal risk, with perseverance, Onesiphorus traveled to Rome and he looked for Paul and he finally found him. In Paul's first Roman imprisonment, the one described in Acts chapter 28, Paul was easy to find. As many people were coming and going from the house in which he lived daily. That's Acts 28.30. But now his circumstances are far more bleak. He's hidden away from public view. He is difficult to find. But Onesiphorus didn't give up. He persevered. In order to be encouragers, we will need to persevere. There'll be challenges. There'll be setbacks. There'll be people who disappoint us. There'll be people who don't receive it well. We must persevere. The second great quality of Onesiphorus in verse 17 is his perspective. As it says, he was not ashamed of my chains. This is one of the themes of this chapter, not ashamed. Verse 8, therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And then again in verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. And in verse 17, Onesiphorus was not ashamed. Onesiphorus was willing to stand up in spite of the risks, in spite of the mockery, and it might have even cost him his life. Did you notice in verse 16 that Paul prayed for the house of Onesiphorus? Some Bible scholars believe that he prayed for Onesiphorus' family because the man himself was already dead. Now, there is not enough evidence here to make that a certain conclusion, but we understand that Onesiphorus took very great personal risks to associate with Paul. He was not ashamed. He was willing to stand with Paul in his suffering. That's his perspective, not ashamed. The third quality I'm going to call his product. What does he produce? And it's also in verse 16. It says, he often refreshed me. The very literal translation is he cooled me off again. The early Latin translation of the Bible uses the word refrigerovit, from which, of course, we get our word refrigerator. Imagine that you have been 
working outdoors on a scorching hot summer day. You've been out in the yard pulling those obstinate weeds or whatever else it is, and the sweat is dripping from your forehead. When a friend comes out bringing you a glass of ice-cold, fresh-squeezed lemonade, and the beads of condensation are already forming on that glass, and you take that glass and you raise it to your lips. Can you taste it? Is your mouth watering? And you feel the cool flow all the way down. That's Onesiphorus. Not once, not twice, but he often refreshed the apostle's soul. Are you a cooler or are you a cooker? Do you refresh souls or when you come around, do you raise the temperature of everybody else? It's a real ministry to refresh souls, and Onesiphorus is the biblical definition of a cool guy. He's faithful. He's not ashamed. He's diligent. He's willing to suffer. He is an example to Timothy and to us all. How can you be like Onesiphorus and not like Phygelus and Hermogenes? Is there somebody, perhaps even today, whom the Lord is calling you to refresh and encourage and strengthen. Be diligent. Be not ashamed of the gospel. Be refreshing. We're all part of a relay as we pass along the gospel of Jesus Christ from one generation to the next to the next until Jesus returns. And all Christians are called to fan into flame the gift of God so that we can fulfill the ministry that God has given us. Fan the flame with a commitment to sound biblical teaching. Fan the flame by guarding the treasure of the gospel. Fan the flame by giving and receiving encouragement to and from other believers. Yes, some may disappoint you, like Phygelus and Hermogenes. Don't let that stop you, because others will refresh your soul, like Onesiphorus.